The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Very warm welcome everybody. You're watching Scorebox this Monday morning. Let's get into your headlines. The US leads a slew of fresh sanctions against Russia targeting the country's financial sector as a former NATO Secretary General tells CNBC the West has made some key miscalculations. Uh, the brutality and the ambitions uh, of uh, President Putin. But at the same time, uh, we have overestimated the strength of the Russian military. The US First Lady Jill Biden makes a surprise visit to Ukraine, meeting her counterpart and reiterating Western support for Kyiv. Well, U.S. and European futures are following Asia into the red after a roller coaster week on Wall Street, whilst the bond market looks set to keep calling the shots with fresh inflation data and Fed speak to you this week. Chinese export growth slows to its lowest level in two years as Beijing's zero COVID strategy weighs on manufacturing and output. The U.S. has unveiled sweeping new sanctions against Russia as it continues to ratchet up restrictions over the invasion of Ukraine. The latest sanctions bar U.S. companies from providing certain financial services within the country, halting the sale of advertising and broadcasting equipment to three state broadcasters and blocking visa access to some 2,600 individuals, including executives from Gazprom Bank and Spurbank. The latest restrictions follow Sunday's virtual G7 meeting, in which leaders also committed to phasing out or imposing an outright ban on Russian oil exports. Well, speaking to G7 leaders on Sunday, Ukraine's president, Volodymyr Zelensky, said the West must follow through on its promise to impose sanctions on Russia and convince those countries that are still reluctant to do so. It is necessary, I beg you, to implement these sanctions and at least give you your feedback. No export-import operations with Russia, as long as Russia is spending the money it has earned on destroying freedom in Ukraine and throughout Europe. The democratic world must be principled in defending itself. We need to look for ways to influence those politicians and those companies that help Russia circumvent sanctions. For example, we transport oil to Hungary through our pipeline, and the politicians of this country not only block the supply of fuel to our territory, but also try to slow down every sanction step against Russia, including the oil embargo. The free world must not allow itself to be manipulated. Meanwhile, the U.S. First Lady Jill Biden has met with her Ukrainian counterpart, Olena Zelenska, during an unannounced visit to Western Ukraine. The two women visited a public school in the far southwestern corner of the country, currently housing over 160 displaced Ukrainians, including 47 children. The meeting came as part of her four-day visit to Europe, where Biden also spent time with refugee families in Romania and Slovakia. Uh, Biden became the latest high-profile American to enter Ukraine and share her support for the Ukrainian people.
that it was important to show the Ukrainian people that this war has to stop. And this war has been brutal. And that people of the United States stand with the people of Ukraine. We all feel your support. And we all feel the leadership of the U.S. president. But we would like to know that the Mother's Day is a very symbolic day for us because we can also feel your love and support during such an important day. German Chancellor Olaf Scholz has committed to continue sending heavy arms to Ukraine. In a televised address to mark the anniversary of the Allies' victory in World War II, Schultz said he understood concerns that weapons deliveries could escalate the conflict, but stressed Germany had a responsibility to defend freedom in Europe. Many of the statements I hear these days express serious concern, concern that the war will spread, that peace will be endangered in our country too. It'd be wrong to simply dismiss this. Such concerns must be able to be voiced. At the same time, fear must not paralyze us. Russia is preparing to mark the anniversary of the Soviet Union's victory over Nazi Germany today. The annual parade through Red Square is expected to flaunt the country's military might and feature 129 military vehicles as well as 10,000 personnel. The so-called Victory Day has taken on a new importance this year, with Western officials speculating that Vladimir Putin will use the occasion to make a big announcement, claims the Kremlin, though has denied. Sweden and Finland are due to uh, announce their plans to join the NATO alliance in coming days. Sylvia has been tracking the story for us. Good morning to you, Sylvia. Good morning, Steve. Indeed, there's a lot of focus on Finland and Sweden. We have seen officials from both countries going to the States, going to Germany, in what political analysts have described as meetings in an attempt to secure uh, additional security guarantees. And indeed, we, are, we have seen in both countries public support to join NATO rising in the wake of Russia's unprovoked invasion of Ukraine. And indeed, we also expect expecting these two nations to say sooner rather than later whether they are indeed intending to apply to become one of NATO's members. And within this context, I actually spoke with the former Secretary General of NATO, Mr. Rasmussen, over the weekend, and he said that this is a good moment to join the alliance because President Vladimir Putin is focused and preoccupied with Ukraine. I look forward to Finland and Sweden joining uh, NATO. Uh, it's good for the two countries because NATO can provide security guarantees. Um, but it's also good for NATO because the two countries can deliver capabilities uh, we need. So they will be welcomed. But you're right, there is an interim period from they deliver their application for membership and until they can formally join NATO. NATO as such is not able to provide ironclad security guarantees in this interim period. So individual allies like the US, the UK, France, etc., they will have to issue bilateral security guarantees as if Finland and Sweden were already members. And from your experience, how long could that interim period be? 
Well, I would say that even if it's considered an urgent procedure, and it is, it will take some months, uh, because you have to go through 30 parliaments uh, before it can be ratified all over uh, uh, NATO. So it will take some months, and during that period, both Finland and Sweden could potentially be exposed uh, to Russian uh, intimidation or even threats, and that's why we have to guarantee their security in that period as if they were already members of NATO. And have you seen any sort of signal from uh, all of the NATO countries that they are uh, ready to say yes to these two applications? I haven't uh, heard of or seen any objection. I think all over the alliance everybody recognizes uh, that both Finland and Sweden should join uh, NATO if they so wish. They could do it uh, and uh, I haven't seen any obstacles. So I think it will be a smooth procedure. But even in that case, it will take some months. And what sort of reaction could that spark from uh, Russia, if indeed two other nations join NATO? Yeah, but uh, as far as Finland and Sweden are concerned, um, I think there is a window of opportunity for the two countries to join exactly now, because uh, Putin is preoccupied elsewhere. He can't do anything about it. Uh, he has tried. Uh, he has already stated that, uh, he, according to him, he wouldn't allow uh, other European countries to join uh, NATO. But it's not for Putin to decide. So I think uh, the two countries should use this window of opportunity and apply exactly now, because Putin can't do anything. So we've heard the different times President Vladimir Putin uh, expressing his opposition against NATO's enlargement. And therefore, there is indeed a huge question mark about what sort of reaction, if indeed uh, Sweden and Finland join NATO, what that would mean in terms of what sort of actions Russia could take in that context. But I also would like to draw your attention to one specific comment that I gathered over the weekend in Salzburg, and that is from the political analyst Ivan Krastev. He said that in the wake of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, one thing has become crystal clear, and that the fact that you're friends, friends with the United States is different from being a NATO member. Before it was not clear what is the difference between member of NATO and just being of the United States. Now it is quite clear that being a member of NATO means Article 5, and being just friend of the United States does not, and this is why Finland and Sweden should move from friends to members. In essence, what he meant is that indeed this security uh, guarantees the fact that uh, uh, the Article 5 of NATO, meaning that uh, an attack on one country is a, an attack against all, is, is just there if indeed you are part of NATO. And just being friends with the United States is not going to help one particular nation, as we might have seen in the context of this Russian invasion of Ukraine. But let's see what sort of comment we'll be gathering from Stockholm and indeed Helsinki over the coming days. For instance, the president of Finland is due to speak later on this week to announce whether or not he's actually supportive of his country joining NATO.
All right, Sylvia, thank you very much indeed. And for the latest on Sweden and Finland's moves to join the military alliance, go online to cnbc.com. Still to come on the program, Chinese import growth slows amid tough lockdown measures. We'll break down the latest trade data in just a moment. And for more on those fresh US sanctions on Russia, you can check out the Scoopbox podcast. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts. Right, welcome back to Squawk Box. The US economy added 428,000 jobs in April. They were good numbers, topping estimates with leisure, hospitality sectors really leading the gains. The unemployment rate held steady at 3.6%, despite expectations uh, that it would fall. Now, average hourly earnings, actually bonkers out there, it was up 0.3%. I hear people saying, oh, that was a bit disappointed. It's up 5.5% on the year. That, to me, continues to point to the tightness of this labour market. And you saw the jolts earlier in the week, of course. Well, we're going to have more on the US economy later today when our colleagues speak to the Minneapolis Fed President, Neil Kashkari. That's coming up at uh, 1400 CET. Got a lot of inflation data this week as well. That's where your focus is going to be. You've got your CPIs and your PPIs and a lot of Fed speak as well. But these US markets, absolutely fascinating. And I'm going to draw your attention to this. Yes, we're down six weeks in a row. Yes, there is a re-rating going on, no doubt about it. And I'll tell you about the re-rating. The Dow is 11% below its record highs. The S&P is 14% below its record highs. But the violence is happening in the Nasdaq. And it was exactly that point last week. Button undoing time. Look at this. 0.24% lower, 0.21% lower. These are the weekly moves. I can't even reach. I'm going to have to give me a little step ladder or Jeff can hold me up. Uh, but the NASDAQ was down 1.5%. So look, yes, I know you had violence on pretty much every single day last week as well. Hence showing why the VIX is back up to 30 and staying around those levels as well, despite the fact that you had a weekend and you had three days of theta, yeah? Know what theta is? If you don't know, have a look. Uh, and the fact of the matter is, but the NASDAQ was down 1.5% again. Some of those star names that had a minor blip earlier in the week, uh, such as the ARK Innovation Fund. It was right back down, well, down to the mid-40s now as well. So a lot of pressure on a lot of those names. As, as, and I'll, before I get to it, as the Treasuries, and don't do the Treasury yet, as they come up as well, I just want to show you the moves on the session for the market. As we say, on Friday, NASDAQ once again losing 1.4%. Right, let's move on to the Treasuries now and have a look at that big level we've got on the 10-year yield, 3.1447 is the yield there as well. And you can see that we've got the 30-year now tipping at 3.2. That's putting pressure, of course, uh, on the 30-year mortgage rate. And there's some great charts of that as well. It has picked up extraordinarily over the last 12 months. Dollar crosses, well, the dollar remains in preeminence. The uh, dollar index was down on Friday, 0.07%, but for the week was up 7 tenths of 1%. Ladies and gentlemen, that is a 20-year High. Look at some of these crosses. Look at sterling. We raised rates last week. Jeff spoke to Andrew Bailey. But 
If there is such thing as a uh, bearish hike or a dovish hike, and, and, and quite frankly, those who bought the market after the Fed hike uh, last week were calling it a dovish hike. Well, they got that wrong. It was nonsense. We said so on the show as well. But if there was such thing as a dovish hike, maybe the language about recession and the concerns about recession, plus, by the way, a 10% inflation handle by the end of the year, perhaps that is why sterling, 122.75. And the fact that actually there are massive constitutional problems going on in Northern Ireland at the moment that uh, the Boris Johnson government has as a headache, plus the fact that the Boris Johnson government got an absolute drubbing uh, in London and other parts of the country uh, in these council elections. Slightly less bad than some had a thought, but still, losing flagship councils like Wandsworth and Westminster. I know we're getting into the weeds on this now, but they were very important losses as well. Euro dollar 105.04, dollar yen up to 131. Great, says the Bank of Japan. It's fine, it makes it more competitive for our exporters as well. Yeah, but for your importers, for your energy costs, for your inflation watch, for consumers as well. Beginning to be a little bit of a political headache now, I can tell you that. Dolly Yuan, 6.7118. So the dollar continues to rally. Look at that, seven tenths of 1% higher on that cross. Uh, Asia markets, ex-Hong Kong and Korea as well. So Nikkei down 2.4. That's interesting. Yeah, do you know what I just said? Uh, good for the exporters, apparently. Look at the Nikkei 225. Concern about trade in Asia. That's coming up with Karen's read in a moment. Concern about trade in Asia. That's what Sam's going to be talking about. 2.4% lower for the Nikkei 225. Nifty 50 down a percent uh, and the ASX 200. Concern, if you looked at the Chinese trade data, you would have seen a whole host of commodities, soft commodities, that have had quite precipitous declines uh, in those volumes. That's coming up as well. So 1.3% lower on the ASX 200. Shall we get to the US futures? Yes, let's have a look. Okay, so US futures uh, down. Actually, that's picked up a bit of momentum. So the Dow now seen down 337 points. The Nasdaq seen down 124 points at the start of trade. Let's get to Karen, who's got a series of reads for you uh, on China. Karen, good morning. Thanks, Steve. Uh, yes, uh, let's just switch to that situation on the ground for the mainland market as uh, Beijing has imposed a series of new COVID testing rules and closed off part of its transportation system as China's capital scrambles to prevent a full-scale lockdown like that seen in Shanghai. Officials in Shanghai, meanwhile, say they will keep the city under lockdown until at least the end of the month, even as uh, China's Premier Li Keqing warned of the destabilizing effect on the country's economy. China's Shanghai Composite is trading around the flat line, as you just saw, while the Shenzhen Composite is higher. This after trade data for April beat expectations, despite many of the country's major cities facing lockdown restrictions. Exports grew almost 4% on the year, while imports remained unchanged. Let's get out to Sam Vardas for more from Singapore. Sam, I know there's a huge focus on whether authorities can contain the outbreak in Beijing without resorting to those full-scale lockdown measures, but still the restrictions have been stepped up. Yeah, they have. And again, the data today with those exports and imports showing the profound impact of those lockdowns and how they are taking a hit, certainly to production and those supply chains. I mean, just for an example of some numbers that we've been crunching and seeing throughput of foreign trade in just a 10 day period in April actually dropped around 4%. And when it comes to the production side of things, of course, we know that these factories over in China and places that are locked down have been opting for these bubbles, these 
closed loop management systems, but we've also been seeing a lot of evidence of the challenges that that comes with as well, because we've seen videos and pictures being circulated in Chinese social media of Quanta, which supplies to the likes of Apple and also Tesla, workers there seemingly clashing with security guards, trying to escape some of those facilities because of rumours of positive cases. So really, that just goes to underscore the incredible challenge that these policymakers are up against to try to manage these lockdowns and these infections and these bubbles, but also to maintain that economic growth. So we saw both the exports and the imports actually coming in better than expected in the month of April, but still some sluggish readings really fueling those concerns about the growth look outlook because of course foreign trade uh, certainly makes up for a big chunk of GDP over in China and is a big generator of jobs and so uh, we did see those exports uh, certainly uh, coming in much steeper losses than we did see uh, in the month of March uh, certainly uh, as I said better than what the market was looking for perhaps as Steve was just talking about with some of those currencies that weaker yuan actually helping uh, out those exports we know that the PBOC has been tolerating a little bit of depreciation there uh, when it came to those imports, I also heard Steve mentioning about the commodities. That's what uh, largely we've been focusing, of course, on China. Uh, certainly has been cutting back on a number of those key commodities uh, from overseas, the likes of uh, iron ore, soybeans, everything from uh, meat and crude oil, coal. It's also been turning to its cheaper domestic supplies for things like coal, but also as we have seen these surging commodity prices off the back of the Ukraine crisis and also a weaker domestic demand. But one thing that may have helped out those imports uh, somewhat was we actually saw imports of crude oil actually jumping in the month of April uh, and also coal as well, which was said to be down to, to some panic buying. Uh, but as I say, even though we have uh, seen these better expected numbers, they are still fairly uh, gloomy readings, you could say, which is making that official 5.5% GDP growth target uh, pretty increasingly challenging to reach. Guys, back to you. Sam, terrific. Thank you very much indeed for that. Let's focus on Hong Kong for a moment. The Beijing loyalist John Lee will be the next chief executive of Hong Kong. Lee, a former police officer, was the only candidate and won over 99% of the vote, a number that would probably make even Vladimir Putin blush, but I editorialise there. So 99.99% uh, of the vote from the city's elite election committee. This was a committee of 1,461 people, which I think has been pointed out that's about 0.02% of Hong Kong's 7.4 million population. Joseph uh, Borrell, the EU's foreign policy uh, official, said um, another step dismantling one country, two systems principle. But uh, how do they feel in Hong Kong about the election outcome? Let's get to Emily, who joins us more now. And Emily, what do we know about what John Chan is, uh, John Lee, sorry, is planning for the territory? Hi there, Jeff. Good morning. We did get a chance to hear from the chief executive elect this morning, John Lee. Uh, it's rather quiet in Hong Kong today because it is a public holiday, uh, but he did come out here to the chief executive office to meet with incumbent Carrie Lam. Uh, that happened earlier this morning, a couple hours ago. Uh, they first held a joint meeting and then a joint press conference. Uh, they didn't take questions, but uh, both spoke in English and Chinese, uh, first the incumbent and then the elect. Uh, so now we have a John Lee uh, police 
Kong's career policeman uh, elected as Hong Kong's next leader. He will take his post on July the 1st, uh, so just a couple weeks out from that. Uh, he said it was a useful meeting with Chief Executive Carrie Lam. The discussion was useful to ensure a smooth transition of the new term of government, and they only have a short seven weeks to do this, and he takes office on July the 1st. Let's listen in on what he had to say this morning. During the meeting with the Chief Executive earlier, we talked about a number of major tasks to be accomplished in the coming weeks of transition, including the proposed government reorganization package, the latest situation of Hong Kong's work in fighting the epidemic, as well as activities celebrating the 25th anniversary of the establishment of the Hong Kong SAR. I'm grateful to the Chief Executive for proposing a package of government reorganization which facilitates this smooth transition between the two terms of government. All support and ensure that he will have success in forming his government. Uh, so a very busy first day, uh, there was the meeting and then the press conference. And then this afternoon, he's got a whole bunch of meetings. He's going to be meeting with uh, the, chief, uh, the Chief Justice, Andrew Cheng, followed by the President of the Legislative Council, Andrew Leung, and then the four offices of the Central People's Government in Hong Kong. That includes the Liaison Office and the Office of Safeguarding National Security, together with the Foreign Affairs Office and the People's Liberation Liberation Army Hong Kong Barracks or Hong Kong Garrison. Uh, so a very busy day for that of John Lee on his first day as a chief executive elect. As I mentioned earlier, he is a career policeman, having served in the police for 35 years and then moving on to become the secretary for security. Uh, he had a role in enacting the national security law. After that, then he was a uh, uh, promoted, if you will, to the Chief Secretary for Administration, becoming Hong Kong's number two. And then just last month, uh, he resigned in order to run for the top job. And now he's got it. And we're going to be seeing what he's going to be doing for us here in Hong Kong, taking the post on July the 1st, when Hong Kong celebrates the 25th anniversary of the handover. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.